Thank you, Denise. Thank you, choir, Richard, Carol, Joyce. It's good to have you with us today. Joyce Bird is the mother of Becky Wilson, who she and her husband Walter Wilson are new, newish members of our church, and their daughters Maddie and Maggie, who are in the youth group, and her husband Bob Bird was my advisor in college at Belmont 15 years ago, um, a few years back at Belmont, so I do appreciate the legacy. She was an organist at Crevewood for how long? Where is she? I can't even see. 30? 40 years. 40 years at Crevewood, which is a daughter church of Woodmont Baptist Church, of course, one of the churches that Woodmont planted. So it's a, a tangled web, the Baptist world, that we, we weave. <laughs> this morning, i um, so grateful and excited about concluding our, our series on prayer. This whole month of March, we've been looking at the power and the practice of prayer, just like the, the choir just sang about, the, the promises that we have about prayer in Scripture, and we've been using a 31-day prayer guide as we've been uh, praying uh, intentionally together uh, in the same direction, the same purpose of prayer throughout this uh, month and during this season of Lent. I hope that you've been able to, to make prayer a priority throughout this season, to make prayer a primary part of your day throughout this month. One thing that I've, I've noticed is our deacons and our, our staff and other leaders in our church, and, and what I've been trying to do as well, is when someone stops us in the hallway uh, and says, you know, I'm going through this hard time, going through something that's difficult right now, instead of just saying, oh, I'll, I'll pray for you about that, because... Let's, let's be honest, how often does it slip our mind? How often do we forget to pray for those things? I've noticed that, that people are just praying in the hallways. And even this morning, someone stopped me and told me something that was going on. I said, oh, we'll be praying about that. And I said, wait, no, no, let's just pray right now. Let's just go to the Lord right now where we are. It's been a really powerful season for me uh, to see how the Lord has answered prayers already and how he's teaching me about prayer and its, it's importance, uh, it's, its vitality, because prayer is essential. Prayer changes things. Prayer is powerful. Prayer doesn't change God. It doesn't change God's mind. God is immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, but prayer changes us. It changes our hearts. When we pray, we are transformed and we are conformed to the image of God in us and to the things that God wants for us. Prayer changes the things we want. It, it, it changes our desires in order to line up with God's desires. When we pray, the, the things that we love become rearranged and rightly ordered. Our priorities become realigned with God's priorities. The first Sunday in this series, we, we talked about how through Christ we can move inward when we pray. We can move into that part of our souls where the Lord dwells through the Holy Spirit in us. And then the second Sunday, we talked about how we can move upward in prayer and into awe and intimacy with God our Father in the holy places. And, and what a great sermon we heard last week. My soul was fed last week by the sermon we heard from our minister to students, Trey Heyman. 
about moving downward in prayer into that dark night of the soul where both great pain and even greater hope can coexist at the same time through the grace of our Lord Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. And today, Palm Sunday, we're going to move outward in prayer as we look at how our, our true King has come to us and has entered into our community, entered into our reality in order to deliver us from our true enemy. Yes, we're going to look at the story that, that Richard read earlier from John 12 of the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem to the, the waving palm branches. But our main text for this morning, we're going to stay in the book of Psalms, this prayer book of the Bible, this wonderful collection of prayers. We're going to read Psalm 10. So I invite you to stand if you're able during this time in honor of God's word as I read this powerful prayer Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. Now skip down to verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. This is certainly not a typical psalm uh, that we would use on Palm Sunday, I'm sure, but as I hope you'll see in a minute, I think this is a highly appropriate prayer for such an occasion as today. So before we go any further with this text, why don't we pray? That's what we're doing this month anyway, right? Let's, let's begin with a word of prayer, then I'll invite you to pray with me at the end of the prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his followers to pray, the Lord's Prayer. And if you need some help with the words, it'll be on the screens. It's okay to open your eyes if you need to during that part of the prayer. Let's go now to the Lord. 
Lord God in heaven, we humbly come before you now, claiming the covering of the blood of Christ over us. Your banner over us is love. And we enter into your holy presence. We acknowledge communally today that you are the sovereign Lord over all creation. That, that we are the dust of the earth, but you've chosen to call us to yourself. You've chosen to redeem us from our sins, to make us your children by adopting us into your family. And now we belong to you, our Father. We corporately confess our need for you today, O oh God. We cannot make it on our own. We need your grace every minute of every day. We, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would move in our midst, that you would indwell us and empower us to be the, the church that you want us to be. God, we need your, your guidance, your wisdom, your provision. We ask all these things from you who alone can give them to us. And now may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we pray as you taught your disciples to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Psalm 10 that we just read earlier is a, a desperate prayer, isn't it? It's a prayer crying out to God to bring justice, to deliver the oppressed from the hand of the wicked. And starts out with that bold question, why, oh God, why do you stand far away? Why are you not in the middle of this mess that we're in? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Wow, that's a bold accusation. Have you ever accused God of hiding himself? Maybe you've felt like it, but you haven't been so bold as to voice that accusation out loud. In times of trouble, it seems a lot of times like the bad guys are winning. How could that be? How could a good God also be sovereign and allow evil people to flourish and thrive? People say, nice guys finish last. Richard and I were at uh, John Buchanan's uh, sister's funeral in Scottsville, Kentucky, a beautiful little town just over the border in Kentucky this, this past week. And we went to a, a restaurant there when there was a guy who um, owned the restaurant, who was a, a buddy of John's, of course, in a small town, and, and Elizabeth's. And he said that he used to work on Music Road just up the block from here in, in the music business. And he said that when he was starting out, he was really naive about how the business worked, and he was just kind of floating along in the music business. And finally, some old wise executive set him aside and said, look, if you're going to make it in this business, you're way too honest right now. You've, you've got to be cutthroat. You're going to have to develop a, a thick skin and be able to lie and cheat and steal if you're ever going to get ahead in this business. So he quit. <laughs> and opened up a restaurant 
in Scottsville, Kentucky. I recommend it if you're ever up there. Earl G. Dumplins, it's awesome. Why is it that the wicked flourish? Why is it that we're told that we have to be a certain way in order to get ahead in this world, a way that conflicts with who God has made us to be at our core? The bad guy here in Psalm 10 is not only boasting about how he oppresses and exploits the poor for his own selfish gain, but he also brags about how he's doing it as an atheist. He's mocking God. In verse 3, he commits blasphemy. He curses the sacred name of the Lord, Yahweh himself. And then in the very next verse, he, he flat out claims there is no God, just daring God to prove him wrong, just daring anyone to correct him and say, oh yes, there is a God. In verse 5, he says that all the ways of the wicked man are prospering. And the whole time it appears that God is just standing off to the side, or worse yet, he's cowering in hidden fear somewhere. Not the sovereign God that we see throughout Scripture. The psalmist accuses God of, of cowering, of hiding, while the wicked guy is doing really well for himself. So in verse 12, the psalmist again asks God to arise and fix it. Then in the, in the very next verse, verse 13, he honestly asks God in his frustration again, why? Why do you allow this to happen? Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? And why do people blatantly sin against you and openly deny you and curse you to your face? What kind of God are you to allow that to go on? No answer comes. But the assurance comes. The assurance that we do not face these issues alone. In verse 14, the key comes to us. The psalmist says, but you do see, for you note the mischief and the vexation that goes on in our world, so that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. God always sees. Just to say that, just to acknowledge that God always sees is an expression of faith. It means that God is not standing off to the side, that God is not cowering in hidden fear somewhere, but that he fully sees, he fully knows, he's omniscient. Nothing escapes his gaze and his memory is long. God always sees. Just to say that is an expression of faith. And therefore, I commit myself to him. The helpless commits themselves to the Lord. The word for commit here in Hebrew literally means abandons themselves. It's, it's more than just a, I'm, I'm deciding to follow God. It's a reckless abandon saying, God, I give up. I completely give all of this to you. I'm betting all of my life on you. Take it and do whatever you want to with it. When we realize that God is omniscient, that he always sees, and that we are helpless, in fact, as it says in the last verse, verse 18, as men of the earth, we are puny and feeble and helpless. 
Therefore, we abandon ourselves to the omnipotent, all-powerful God who made heaven and earth and all that dwell within it. He's the one who has always helped the fatherless and the oppressed and the helpless in the past. Don't you remember? This, the psalmist has a memory too of how God has been the vindicator of the oppressed in the past and he will do it again. So he prays now that that, that justice would once again be executed on behalf of the oppressed. And that God would hold these wicked people accountable for their actions. In verse 15, when he says, break the arm of the wicked, that's not a literal expression. That means destroy the power of the oppressor. Break the yoke from off of the backs of those who are being exploited by the wicked. And then the, the prayer closes with an affirmation in verse 16. It, it concludes with affirmation and adoration. Verse 16, the Lord, Yahweh, is king forever and ever. Not just of Israel, but of all nations and all people. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome, America. They've all fallen or will fall before God ever does. While we don't understand why God operates the way that he does, or we, we don't always have an immediate answer when we ask him to arise, or we don't understand why injustice is happening all around us, there are still two promises here that are for the present, for us to claim in the here and the now. First, God hears us when he calls. Not only does he see, but he, he hears us when we call. He will incline his ear to us, verse 17 says. When his children call out to him, when we hear Isaiah call in the middle of the night, our one-year-old son, our hearts break for him, and we run to him, even though sometimes that's enabling and doctors have different theories on that, but... <laughs> Our hearts break because we love him. He's our baby. God, when you cry out to him, Lord, I'm helpless. He hears you. He inclines his ear to you in a specific loving way that's unlike anyone else hears you. This means that no prayer goes unanswered. No prayer goes unanswered. Think about that. Every time that we pray, God always hears it. He does not ignore it. God always answers our prayers one way or another. It may not be readily obvious or apparent to us, and it certainly may not be the way that we were hoping or expecting or wanting, but God always answers prayers one way or another. The second promise here is that God will strengthen our hearts while we wait, while we endure the wickedness around us. God will strengthen our hearts. This reminds me of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul who prayed three times, Lord, remove this thorn from my flesh. We don't know what it was exactly, but he was desperate for God to take it away. And God answered his prayer and said, no, no, I'm gonna leave it right there. Because in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. My grace is sufficient for you. 
No was the answer that God gave him. And then Paul said, fine, therefore I'm going to boast all the more in my weakness because when I am weak, he is strong. I'm going to boast so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, not my own power. For the sake of Christ then, he says, I'm content. I'm content with weaknesses, with failures, with insults, with hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. One people that we see throughout Scripture who endure persecutions and calamities and hardship are God's children, the Israelites. All throughout the Old Testament, they're enduring one catastrophe after the other until finally in 586 B.C., the mighty Babylonians come marching surrounding the city of Jerusalem for the final time destroying the holy temple of God, carrying off God's children as slaves to be exiled all the way back in Babylon. They sent God's people there until the mighty Persian Empire came over 50 years later and destroyed the Babylonians. The Persians then said, what are we going to do with all these Jewish people? Let's send them back. So they sent guys like Ezra and Nehemiah back to Jerusalem to, to rebuild the city and to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple, and they did just that. And this, this faithful remnant of Israel actually did pretty well and grew until, of course, Alexander the Great came in the 300s from Greece and, and conquered them once again. The Jewish people then revolted, of course, against the Greeks, and they eventually overthrew the oppressors through the Maccabean revolt and led to this Hasmonean dynasty that was a Jewish rule for, of course, a short time, because then who came to town? The Romans. The mighty Romans seemed to be an unstoppable force. The empire was spreading like a virus over the whole earth. They set up a, a puppet king, a, a Roman ally, Herod the Great, over Judah and Jerusalem. This is the guy who brutally ruled over Jerusalem, the one who, when he heard that there was a Messiah who had been born in Bethlehem, ordered all the male infants in Judea to be slaughtered. He taxed the Jewish people heavily and, and without uh, remorse, and he built massive projects for the glory of Rome and for his own legacy. Everywhere that Jews went throughout Jerusalem, Roman soldiers would exploit them and do things like force them to carry their gear for a mile, which is why Jesus said, if someone forces you to go one mile, go another with them. That's where we get the phrase extra mile from, but that was out of the context of the Roman oppression that the Jews were enduring throughout Judea during the first century. The Romans would swiftly and mercilessly crucify anyone who dared to be a rabble-rouser who spoke against the empire who might possibly cause a rebellion, anyone who's a threat to their authority. That's the context in which Palm Sunday happens. The people of God had been crying out for, for a generation, when, God, when are you going to break the arm of the oppressor? When will you lift this yoke of Rome off of us? When will you deliver us back unto yourself so we can be a holy nation once again, free from Roman oppression? The story of Palm Sunday tells of this glorious moment when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. 
He'd been traveling throughout Galilee and, and Samaria and, and Judea. He was healing the sick and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. But now it was time for him to finish his work on earth. It was time for him to face his final destiny that the Lord had appointed for him. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, there's a turning point in the story. It says, when the days drew near for Christ to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. See, Jesus, Jesus knew exactly what was going to await him when he got to Jerusalem. He knew exactly what sort of fate was going to be there for him in Jerusalem. He would soon be offered up as a sacrifice for the sins of the world and endure great suffering and shame. So let's read about the so-called triumphal entry again from John 12 that Richard read earlier. John 12, verse 12 says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, the greatest miracle ever, and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You see, these, these crowds of Jewish believers came pouring out of the city of Jerusalem to see this, this man who was a prophet, priest, and king, one who had raised the dead back to life, Lazarus, who lived in a suburb of Jerusalem just outside the city walls. So they cut palm branches, and they waved them frantically, welcoming the, the Messiah into the city because palms are a symbol of victory over one's enemies. At last, they thought, the, the Messiah, the promised anointed one, the Mashiach, the Deliverer, the Savior, is here to defeat our enemy, Rome. But Jesus did not arrive with an army. He didn't come in on a war horse with a big suit of armor with a massive sword draped at his side. He showed up instead on a baby donkey, just like the prophet had foretold 500 years ago that he would. The Lord said through Zechariah, remember 500 years before this, Jerusalem was in ruins. He looked out over the rubble of the destroyed city and said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, but also humble and mounted on a donkey. Not just a donkey, on a colt. A baby donkey, the foal of a donkey. Their Mashiach would indeed be righteous and he would have the power to save. He'd be mighty to save and possess salvation but he would not be a mighty warrior in the earthly sense. No, he would be humble 
He would be meek and mild. He would be a man of sorrows, having no form or majesty that we should look on him, as Isaiah said. He would be despised and rejected, like a lamb led to slaughter. He would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we will be healed. Sometimes salvation doesn't look like we expect it to. Sometimes justice doesn't occur the way that we would want it to. Prayer helps us accept the reality that God's ways are best, that he knows what he's up to. He knows what he's doing. He sees even when we do not. Our hearts are strengthened when we pray because of that reality. This is why Jesus taught us to pray like we just prayed in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 7. When you pray, he said, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they're going to be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him, because he sees you. Pray like this, then, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to close with just that phrase. Moving outward in prayer is asking God to intervene for those around us. It's inter intercessory prayer, prayer on behalf of others. It's saying to God, your kingdom come in our community your will be done around us on earth like it is in heaven. Real quickly, what's God's kingdom? God's kingdom is anywhere where his will and his reign and his rule are perfectly done. Where does that happen? In heaven, of course. In heaven, God's will and his reign and his rule are perfectly executed. There's no sin, there's no suffering, there's no tears. So when we pray for heaven to come to earth, we're asking God, to break the power of the wicked, to throw off the yoke of the oppressor who causes injustice. We move outward in prayer by asking God to make his will be done where it's not being done, where people are suffering, where shame is occurring. You know, it's really easy for Christians to stay inside our, our little holy huddles, right? It's easy for us to focus on our own needs and the needs of our friends around us, the needs of our church members even. But Jesus reminds us here that we are called to pray on behalf of those outside the walls of the church. We're called to pray for this fallen world in which we live in, that God's will and his reign and his rule would be done here like it is in heaven. When we see pawn shops next to liquor stores, next to advanced payday loan stores in the poorer areas of our city. We should pray that God would break the yoke of the oppressor. We see laws that are being passed that benefit the rich without concern maybe for the poor. We should pray that justice would be done and ask God to intervene. And when we look at our city, when we look at Nashville, the influx of people who are coming to our city every day, our hearts should break at the lostness of our city, that the vast majority of folks in our city don't know Christ as Lord and are therefore perishing physically and spiritually.
We should pray as Jesus did over Jerusalem, weeping for the lostness and the brokenness of our city. So let me close just by giving you three takeaways I see here on Palm Sunday through these different texts. First, life's not fair, at least not on this broken earth in which we live in. We live in a fallen world where injustice and wickedness abound and seem to flourish unstoppably. We have to acknowledge that reality first. Our world is broken. Second, God is fair. He is just. He is always right. His ways are perfect. His rulings, his standards, his precepts are perfect. And third, God will win. He sees all this wickedness around us. He's not hiding in fear. He hears our prayers and he is not slow to fulfill them as some would count slowness, but is patient with us because he loves us. Jesus came into Jerusalem. He was welcomed as a conquering hero, the one who would kick the filthy Romans out of town for good. But that same crowd, remember, who waved the palms and shouted, Hosanna in the highest, would just a few short days later be shouting, crucify. Jesus had failed to overthrow Rome. But what they didn't understand, the crowds didn't get, was that Jesus came to deliver them, not from their mortal, earthly enemies, but came to deliver them from their true enemy. Jesus comes into our world to make earth more like heaven and less like hell. By breaking the yoke of sin and the oppression of death forever. He comes to make the blessing of God's salvation known in the darkest places in our world by proclaiming good news. So remember, even when it appears that sin is winning, when it looks like the wicked have prevailed, remember that life's not fair, but God is, and he will win. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We proclaim our faith in you together today, that you see everything. Nothing escapes your gaze, and your memory is long. We trust justice to you, O oh God. Your word tells us that vengeance belongs to you, not to us. We know that you are making all things new, that you are redeeming, restoring, and recreating this fallen world. Use us to be a part of that, God. We pray these prayers not just asking you to move, but for you to move through us. We pray that you would not only rise up and bring justice, but that you would let your church rise up as well. That we would move outside these walls into a community that desperately needs you and your word and your healing and your redemption. Lord, we love you. Align our hearts with yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I love this, this hymn we're going to sing here for our hymn of invitation. This is my Father's world. The third verse, we're going to sing multiple verses, no matter if anyone comes or not. But the third verse says, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet.
This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. So as we move outward in prayer, we need to remember that though the wrong seems off so strong, that God is the ruler yet. If you're sad today, if you're dealing with injustice, sickness, poverty, pain, loss of a relationship, whatever it is that you're going through, Jesus Christ is the answer. I don't mean that flippantly. I mean the gospel is good news for you now and today. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's no better time to do that than right now. I'll be here to talk to you about it during our invitation. If you want to join Woodmont Baptist Church as a member of this church, I'd love to talk with you about that as well. Whatever it is that you're going through today, don't leave this place until you've dealt with the Lord. Let's stand and sing, This Is My Father's World.